The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. NCAA football, MLB, NBA, UFC, esports, and other global sports, and even bet on politics, celebrities, and reality shows for that matter. You can also bet on games while they are playing with BetDSI's live betting. So join BetDSI today using promo code TAFFER101, and you're already won by doubling your bankroll straight away. That's promo code TAFFER101 to get in the action and get paid. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started, because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Welcome to the No Excuses Podcast for January 22nd, 2019. And before I even get going, I want to remind you, hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts or go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes of my No Excuses Podcast every Tuesday. You can't go wrong, so go do that right now, even as we're talking. Well, we have a great podcast for you this week. I'm pretty excited. I have Jedediah Bila as my guest, who you might know from The View, Fox, MSNBC, CNBC. Uh, uh, Jedediah has some very interesting and uh, uh, diverse political views and views of life that I want to talk about, including her view of technology addiction, which is pretty fascinating. So we're going to talk to Jedediah in a little while. We're also going to talk about a little current events, a couple of things that are pissing me off, to tell you the truth, this week that I want to talk about. But before we even get going, I want to start by just thanking my, my sponsors, who without them, we wouldn't even be here. So big thanks to MyPillow, Quicken Loans, BetDSI, the Robinhood app, and True Car. Because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here. So, you know... We are in, I forget what week number is, of this government shutdown or partial government shutdown or whatever the heck they want to call it. And it's funny, I happen to own the term shut it down. And I actually trademarked it and owned it. I wonder if I should sue them for using the term shut it down. But, you know, I wanted to have a non-political, completely non-political discussion about how the hell do we get into a place like this where we're in such a political deadlock. And I took some classes in political science when I was in college, and uh, uh, I learned a lot about politics and the political process and the pitfalls of what happens when one negotiates themselves into a corner and, and how politics, just like building something or negotiating something or any other business, whether it's even opening a bar or restaurant, a trade show, it all has to flow in a way that there's no deadlocks. And compromise is, is the single most important element to anything moving forward. Compromise between partners, between bankers, investors, and operators. Uh, 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 compromise between employees and employers. I mean, everything in our country is based upon the premise of compromise and working together. So I want to have a non-political talk about this for a minute. I want to talk about the humanity of politics. And I was on Fox a couple weeks ago. And I had a discussion about this on Fox, not taking any political sides whatsoever, because that's not what this podcast is about. This podcast is about us learning from life and not having any excuses. So let's talk for a moment about the humanity of politics. And the humanity of politics to me is one word, and it's the word dignity. You see, dignity is critical to any negotiation or any partnership. If you were coming to negotiate with me to sell me a widget, 
and you thought that that negotiation process was going to leave you robbed of your dignity, that you were going to be insulted and your dignity was going to be taken from you in a public fashion, if you came to negotiate with me to sell those widgets, would you come? And the answer is no. Most people wouldn't. You see, people don't go to a place where they know in an anticipatory way that their dignity is going to be taken from them, that they're going to be shamed, that they're going to be otherwise embarrassed. So any negotiating process must start with the premise of dignity. If both sides know when they get to the table that whatever they leave with, they're not going to lose their dignity at the table, they have a reason to sit down. If solutions are realized where people can have a solution to a disagreement where both sides can leave with dignity, then there's a solution. You see, the minute the dignity is removed from one side or another, they don't want to sit and talk. The minute the dignity is removed from one side or another from the deal or the negotiation that's made, that side doesn't want to do it. So when there's no dignity, there's no negotiations. And when there's no dignity... There's no decisions, there's no compromise, there's no moving forward. So providing each of us with some type of dignity is critical to moving along any negotiating process. Think about it. Dignity is the backbone of any negotiation. As I said, if you don't feel you're going to leave the table with dignity, then there's no reason to sit down at the table. Dignity is also the backbone of any partnership with anyone whether it's family, whether it's business partners, if my partner isn't going to treat me with dignity and being partners with this person is going to cost me in my personal or professional dignity, that's not a partnership that's going to succeed in any way. So dignity is the backbone of any negotiation and the backbone of any partnership. So if we all agree on that, and I think we do, that any negotiation or any partnership must begin and end with dignity for both sides so that they can live with themselves. Well, then that raises the next issue. How do our politicians get into a place where they dig into such a deep level that if they step out of their own positions, they lose their dignity? You see, when a politician does that, regardless of what side they're on, that is a failure as a politician. That's like an architect building a building that can't stand. You see, politicians should never negotiate themselves into a place where the other side can have no dignity or no reason to negotiate with you. And in this case, we can place blame on all sides for taking the opportunity of dignity away for the other side. And by doing that, that is a failure at a political 101 level. So our politicians, by the very nature of the way they're acting, have removed all dignity from the deal-making process by making it so attacked-ridden so there'll be no deal. And they've created no dignity in any potential partnership or crossing the aisle or compromise. So by removing dignity from any potential partnership, there will be no partnership. And by removing dignity from any possible negotiation process, there will be no negotiation process. Now, this is politics 101. And when politicians negotiate themselves into these places, removing dignity from the process, putting lines in the sand where they can't cross without losing their dignity, that is a political failure 
regardless of what side you are on or they are on. That is a political failure. And our country and our lives and none of us can move forward with political failures like this. And when we consider the fact that politics, in fact, drives everything from medicine to research to construction to all sorts of elements of society and social programs, politics drives everything. So if politics drives everything and we have politicians who can so blow it and remove the dignity and the backbone of the negotiation and partnership process, then everything starts to fall apart. So I suggest that if we don't somehow give our politicians an out, some way to gain dignity by the movement of these public positions, we are going to be stuck and when we don't put dignity back in the political process and the business process, then we're not going to have good politics or good business and we're not going to move forward. And that's the point that I wanted to talk about. And there's no political sides in what I just said. The side that wants the wall dug themselves in and removed all dignity from the side that refuses to put it in. The side that refuses to put it in has removed any potential possibility of dignity from the side that wants to put it in. And for that reason, that lack of dignity makes them honestly fools. In a political education standpoint, political knowledge, political posturing, diplomacy, they've blown it completely. And who started it? Who the hell knows? Because I refuse to point, pick, uh, point fingers, but I will identify the issue. They are failing at a political politics 101 level, which is incredible. Let's talk for a minute about negotiations. Because, you know, Trump wrote a book on negotiations, and there's different styles of negotiations, and it's come out quite a bit as a topic of, you know, we're going to negotiate. We're not going to negotiate. That was a bad negotiation. You know, when we take a look at the style of negotiating, there's two styles that we use in negotiating for business or for any type of thing that we do. We even negotiate with our children these ways, our parents these ways. You know, you can negotiate coming in hard and ending soft. Coming in hard means if there's four things that I want, and really one of them isn't very important to me, I'm going to come in hard demanding all four, knowing that I'm going to throw one away along the way to ease up the pressure. You see, the negotiating style of coming in hard and ending soft is a style I happen to use. And here's why. If I come in hard in negotiations, never so hard as to take dignity away, but come in hard on my negotiating points, and I leave something in my back pocket that I can throw away in the negotiations or give back in the negotiations, what happens is the negotiations start hard, but as they move down the process, they get softer. Suddenly, I give something back. They give something back. So when the deal ends, it doesn't end in the hardest of positions during the negotiation process. It ends in a softer give-me-back mode. When you do that, the negotiation ends in a much more positive way. Both sides tend to have a lot more dignity. And now with that positive end to the negotiation process, a partnership begins in a very healthy way. Now, the other side of negotiating is to come in soft and end hard. Well, I'm against that approach in negotiations, and here's my view. If you come in soft and say, listen, I only want these three things. I don't need the fourth thing. You know, I love you. I'm going to be an open book. I'm easy to negotiate with. Then what happens is the other person starts negotiating harder, and now you can't back off on your starting position. So as the negotiations move on, and everybody wants to get something out of the negotiations, some element back, 
When you don't have something in your pocket to give back, the negotiations end harder than they do when you come in hard. And that hard ending can create dignity issues, can personally challenge people, and can cause a new partnership to end in a more difficult, harder place. So when you look at the choice of negotiations, in hard, out soft, or in soft, out hard, you know, you can argue either side. But clearly, when it takes a look at how to structure a relationship that has dignity to go forward and how to create a partnership that, uh, where the negotiation ends in a positive process and allows people to move forward and begin a venture with a lot of positive energy, not wounds from the negotiation, well, then coming in hard and ending soft is the way to go. And, and without the assumption of dignity, it doesn't matter. So... The whole point of talking about this with you today is to identify that we all have a common problem. No matter what side of, the, of political views or political spectrum or political beliefs we're at, we all have a common problem. None of our views are going to move forward if we are incapable of giving dignity to the other side. And we must understand that regardless of our political views. So I suggest that when we see our politicians robbing dignity, we tell them to shut the hell up. When we see our politicians going down a path that eliminates the potential of discussions and negotiations and friendships and compromise and good decisions that moves us forward at least some of the way, then we need to say something. Because when we take dignity out of the process, we are killing the process. And that's what's going on, and we see it all around us. So I plead to us all. Let's fight a little for dignity over views. And if we fight for the dignity, we'll find that our views might actually move forward into actions as people talk, negotiate, and move ideas back and forth with dignity, not without it. And that was what I really wanted to talk about today, because sitting down here in Puerto Rico, it's really very frustrating for me to see this go on and on and on and on, and all anybody's doing is digging in more. Nobody has come up with a path to give the other side dignity so we can get to the table and get something done. And when we look back at our lives, the greatest moments and the greatest accomplishments is when that happened, is when one side gave dignity to another and they sat down at a table and son of a gun, they found solutions. Okay, enough on our politics. They got some serious problems in Paris because people are really peeved <laughs> at these public Eco-friendly urinals. Okay, imagine this. You know when you walk through the park or maybe a city street, there are the big public garbage pails. And I don't know, they're two, three feet wide and they're pretty big. And sometimes they have a flap that swings back and forth on the top or a hole on the top to put your trash in it. But it's otherwise a big garbage pail. Well, in Paris, they've installed a funnel type of a hole in the garbage pail about two and a half, three feet up on the side. So a man can walk up to this garbage pail, stick his member <laughs> into the funnel of the garbage pail, and take a piss. So people don't like this because apparently there's no uh, uh, dividers or anything on the side of this. So it's quite public that people are going out there. They're, they're pulling out their uh, members, and they are just peeing into these units. And a lot of people are saying, well, they're not peeing in the bushes. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. But... <laughs> Apparently, the people aren't happy in Paris about the uh, um, eco-friendly urinal system. People are peeing all over the place down there. So a guy in, in Southern California is a dine and dash dater. 
and he's in jail for 120 days. This dude has it down, man. This guy, <laughs> he uses a couple of dating sites. He gets himself set up with a very nice dinner with it, with a, a young lady, and he goes out to dinner, and he dresses nicely, and they sit down, and have a wonderful dinner, and he excuses himself to go to the bathroom, and the guy books, and he's a dine and dash data. Well, finally, they, they arrested him, and uh, uh, it's petty theft, but uh, he's, he has 120 days in jail and 45 days of community service. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. So that whole Dine and Dash thing didn't work out so well for him. Well, I have news for everybody that's pretty exciting to me. I'm about to become a grandfather. And I was visiting my daughter a couple weeks ago, and, and she handed me a present in a gift wrap box. And, and I opened a present, and sure enough, it was the ultrasound picture of my grandson. So in June, I'm going to have my first grandson. And of course, when, when you're going to have a grandson, you know, you think about what are you going to name it? What are you going to name it? So I was looking online and I came up with a website that is just absolutely hysterical. And it's the 36 funniest names in the world. Now, Nicole and I, my wife, we do this all the time. We come up with funny names and, and you know, guys like Rick Shaw or Roman Shades. And one day I was at a, a gate in an airport and they paid, paged a, a lady by the name of Crystal Light to pick up her upgrade. I thought that was a pretty good one. Uh, in any event, this was so funny that I had to share some of these with you. And I'm going to tell you, I'm looking at them myself, and I know them to be real. In many cases, these are snapshots of a television screen during a news story, uh, and a name is involved in the news story. Well, the first one is Donald Duck, uh, who was on uh, Channel 19 Action News in, in, I don't know what city it is. Uh, the next one is Follette Mignon, M-I-N-Y-O-N. She's the marketing executive at a place called Mission Possible, debt-free living. <laughs> P. Ennis, of course, penis, there's, you're always going to find one of those. James Grosswiener, not so great. Yolanda Squat Pump. And I'm looking at a copy of Yolanda's driver's license. But here's an amazing one. This is an undersung scientist. An investigator, Eileen Peters, alerts us to the fact that Dr. Shit F. Chu our undersung scientist of the month back in December and again in February. So this woman's name is Dr. Shit, and that is S-H-I-T, Fun, F-U-N, Chu, Shit, Fun, Chu. That's a pretty good one. The next one I see is this is a gen, and this is an image from Russian television. It's, he's a language, and it is Russia Live is the show that I'm looking at on the screen, and he is a language specialist, and underneath is the tag with his name on it, and his name is? Tiny Cox, C-O-X, and Tiny is the Council of European something or other. Next one is Mr. Sackrider. How about this one? Dick Wiener, Dick Power, Mr. Perv, believe it or not, and he's a fifth grade teacher. Dr. Rick Titball is <laughs> a microbiologist. Dick Felt, of course, played with the Patriots. Diana Debag. Okay, that's not so bad. Fanny Licker. I'm looking at the gravestone of Miss Fanny Licker, who died on November 2nd, 1945. Ah, I just can't believe this one. This is unbelievable. This is a gentleman in India who's the head of a group, of a technology group, and his name truly is Jurassic Park, and that is the man's name. Mr. Butt is not a bad one. How about Dick Thrasher? Not a bad name, of course. Uh, uh this one really shocked the hell out of me. This is BBC News, and this is a clip of the television live from Brussels. 
And there's a gentleman, and he's talking in the camera, and his name is there on the banner underneath. And it says his name, and then underneath it, it says Europe Correspondent. But the guy's name is Matthew Correspondent, and he's a European correspondent. Anyway, well, after that heavy political discussion, I thought it'd be fun to lighten it up a little bit with some of those crazy names. Anyway, I'll be right back with my guest, Jedediah Biva. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Well, it's the new year, and it's a great time to set goals to make sure it'll be a great year for you and your business. And making that perfect hire can help set your team up for success. But where do you find that person? You can post on a job board and hope the right person will apply. But why leave it up to chance when you can post your job where people go every day to make connections, grow their career, and discover job opportunities? LinkedIn. And most LinkedIn members aren't checking job boards regularly, but 9 out of 10 LinkedIn members are open to and interested in new opportunities like yours. And with most of the U.S. workforce on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people. People with the right skills and background for your role who are also ready for something new. It's the best way to find a person who will help grow your business. And that's why a new hire is made every eight seconds using LinkedIn. So find the right people for your business this year at LinkedIn.com slash Taffer and get $50 off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash Taffer to get $50 off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash Taffer. Terms and conditions apply. Well, every car comes with its share of stories. How about that ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date, or the luxury package you got after a big promotion, or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer? While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car's worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then just answer a few questions like navigation, moonroof, and watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew it was going to cost you, but now you'll know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. And once you're finished, you'll get a True Car cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer, not available in all states. Tapper's back. This is No Excuses with John Tapper. Well, I've been looking forward to this interview big time. I have Jedediah Beaver with me, who's been on MSNBC, CNBC, Fox, God knows how many television channels, books, articles, and of course, you might know her from The View. And there's so much that I want to talk to Jedediah about, so it's a real honor to have you here, and I've been so looking forward to this. Welcome. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm going to make you blush for a second. So Uh-oh. first of all, you're an island girl from Staten Island in New York. I'm an island boy from Long Island in New York. Your dad was a small businessman. You grew up in a, in a pretty ethnic family smelling marinara sauce every day. Quick question. Did anybody in your family ever call it gravy or was it always marinara sauce? Oh, no, it was gravy. And it's funny because it was a debate. Half of my family is from Sicily and the other fa- the other half is from Naples and half called it sauce and half called it gravy. So that was like the war that existed before I was even born. There That's was like funny. a whole big thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm from Staten Island and... Um, my dad is actually from Long Island. He's from Elmont. 
And uh, my mom grew up in Brooklyn. So it's a very, you know, everyone always asks me like, oh, you know, what does your house look? What did your house look like growing up? And it was just a really simple, you know, charming, small house. I'm actually heading out to a book signing today out there on Staten Island, right by right in the Staten Island Mall, which I used to walk to every day. So, yeah, it was a pretty crazy uh, Italian family. <laughs> so, so, but you, you were uh, at all didn't go on to have a simple life. You were valedictorian at Wagner College, and I want everybody to hear this. Uh, with a minor in business administration, then you earn your Master of Arts from Columbia. Then you went to an acting voice. A, a, a program at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Then you became a, a marketing associate in the corporate world. Then you became a teacher at a private school and an academic dean. Then you went on to launch a media career on Fox, MSNBC, CNBC, Glenn Beck. Then you went to The View, then back to Fox. It was it was really, you know, I, I wasn't one of those people who knew what I wanted to do right away growing up. And when I was in college, I I really didn't know what I wanted to major in. And I thought it would be really cool to be able to do everything that I did in English and Spanish. So I wound up doing a Spanish major. And I thought, oh, you know what? I'll pair this with business. And I love college campuses. I'll be a professor. That was very much where my head was. And when I, you know, I, we, we didn't have a lot of money in my family. Um, we're very middle class, but, you know, graduate school is expensive. So I worked my butt off. And I got a scholarship and, and I, I got a, a full PhD, actually, scholarship to Columbia, which completely blew my mind. And I was there for a year. I got my master's. I crunched it all in one year, which is not easy. <laughs> and I just felt like um, I just didn't feel like me. I said, you know, I love the material. It's great, but something's missing and kind of headed out into the world and wasn't afraid to do a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, when I was a child, I had wanted to be an actress. My mom actually ran a performing arts studio out of our living room. And it was small acting classes. She used to teach improvisation and voice. And that was my, my first passion. My problem was that I was really, really shy. And I just didn't have the guts to, to, to do it. I went out to LA when I was like 22. And I was, I was kind of like a lost puppy out there. And I said, you know, I don't know if I have the confidence to do this, even though I loved the acting. So I came back here and I, I wasn't afraid to kind of take a minute to find myself and figure out, did I want to be in the corporate world or did I want to go into teaching, but maybe not college? I, I taught actually a year of college as a visiting lecturer and then went and taught at a private school on the Upper East Side of New York City. Um, I taught grade seven to 12 and was a dean and, and, and was kind of struggling a little bit to find my way, even though I felt like I was, I was doing amazing things and learning, learning every step of the way and really fell back into television by, by chance um, and read a book. I had read a book by Mark Levin called Liberty and Tyranny that my dad had actually recommended and said, you know, you should check this book out. And I, I was always you know, a center right kind of girl. Um, you know, I say I popped out of the womb kind of liking Ronald Reagan and thinking he made sense. And it was just kind of instinctive that I wanted people to have low taxes and keep more of their money. And just a lot of these conservative principles, uh, freedom loving principles, I'd say more, cause I kind of consider myself more of a libertarian conservative now, but I, that was just very instinctive for me. What's interesting is throughout your entire life up to that point, you were not very political, were you? You were really much more into education, language, uh, uh, the arts, performing arts. 
Yeah. Well, you know what it was? I always had an opinion about everything. And I say to my audience now, I could have chosen to review a book about dogs and cats. I'm very passionate about animals. I'm very, I'm a very opinionated girl who sat around dinner tables with my family and always wanted to have a conversation. So, and my, my family was very politically diverse. My dad was very conservative. My grandparents were Democrats. Um, so, you know, my, we, we had a very eclectic group of people all the time, you know, liberals, conservatives, libertarians. So the conversations were very diverse and every, and I learned that that was kind of neat and fun to be able to talk to people who you completely disagreed with and make your case. And I think because I was instinctively conservative and, and went and, and thrived in these very typically liberal areas like the performing arts, like academia in New York City, like being a Manhattan girl, that I was used yeah. to having to kind of make my case to an audience that was inclined to disagree with me. And that was kind of fun. So I, I wasn't necessarily political in the sense that I wanted to run for office or I, I was, you know, a talking head or I was one of those people that, you know, wanted to go to D.C. and work for a senator. But I had a lot of opinions and I always felt like politicians and people on television weren't creating commentary that was relatable to the average person. Like me sitting at home watching that always felt kind of detached from it. So when I had the opportunity to go and I had, you know, reviewed Mark Levin's book and got a call from Sean Hannity, I remember being at school teaching a class and getting a call from Sean Hannity's team saying, hey, do you want to come on TV? I almost fainted. I was like, me? Why do you want me? You know, why? Why? But I went on and I and I immediately said, you know what? I'm going to do this because I am just a regular girl from Staten Island with an opinion and I grew up in a middle class family and I'm going to make these politicians hear people like me, which I felt was pretty much most of the country who lived like that and felt unheard. So, so that's you and I really share that because I came up in a, in a hospitality business and, you know, I'm on Fox very often and, and do the television stations quite a bit. Same thing with me. I never thought of myself as a journalist. This was never a career goal, but I felt I had something I wanted to say mm -hmm. and, and having that platform to say it was really powerful. I have a question for you that's really of very course. timely. You know, you've, you and I both have grown up around people that, that have differing political views than ourselves. And, you know, years ago, we could sit down at a dinner table and we could have really great conversations. It was I looked forward to those conversations where we would engage and exchange ideas and and concede on a point of each other's here and there. The past few years, those peaceful dinners have sort of ended. Mm -hmm. And do you find as one who is opinionated and one who is surrounded by those with an opposing view that it's just more difficult to have those conversations today and that the divisiveness is at a point where it's more difficult to exchange ideas? I do. I actually do. And I think that for me, that was actually one of the, the reasons that I wrote the book that I did, Do Not Disturb. And yep. the reason the reason that I, I felt that was happening was in large part because of the role of social media. I watched Twitter become you know, a stomping ground for just such ugliness. And what was happening is that I noticed that people were taking that, those Twitter exchanges or those Facebook exchanges where people were able to hide behind this screen or this image yep. that oftentimes wasn't even an image of them. And they would kind of dissociate from the humanity of the whole situation and forget that they were having a conversation with another human being. And it was just nasty. They would take that and bring it into real life. And I saw it happen on television too. When I started in television, I felt that there was much more of a passion for conversation. And 
by the time I started writing this book, I started to wonder if there was going to be a place for me in the news business because I, I'm not interested in a shout fest. I don't, I don't think it's good television and I also don't think it helps anyone. So I was trying to figure out how do I do what I want to do and what I've always done when the world is becoming a place where you shout one-liners back and forth at each other to get retweets and then you take that into your real life and that becomes the norm. So I think social media and technology and even just the way people communicate, you know, over text message, nobody makes a phone call anymore. You're losing the humanity of, of all of those interactions. And in turn, we're becoming kind of like robots for really bad behavior. And, and, and our kids, our grandkids, I mean, I don't have kids personally, but I taught them for years. And I look at this and I'm like, what are you teaching these generations? What are we going to raise that in 20 years, this, there's going to be a whole generation of people that doesn't know how to have a conversation because their only conversation happens through a cell phone or through social media where they can get away with being rude and ugly. And that's the new norm. Yeah. And, and, and from this place, it only gets worse uh, with this type of an environment that we're creating here. You know, yeah. I find it fascinating. I was on uh, uh, Cavuto last week with uh, David Asman, and, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, deadlock and shutdown. And you know, I was referring to to and he was talking about Trump's negotiating power of coming in hard and ending soft and all that. But, you know, as one who's a businessman and a negotiator my whole life, if if I wanted to negotiate something with you and you had an opposing position, and you felt that I was going to take your dignity away if you came to these negotiations. You'd never come, would you? Mm-hmm. That's right. But That's right. yet, if I had an environment where you said, you know what, if I come negotiate with him, he's not going to take my dignity away publicly. So it seems like an exercise that I can't lose on. It seems worthwhile. It seems to me that that one word, that there's no assurance that people retain their dignity after a political session, I'll say today, uh, uh, impedes our ability to have the bridges necessary to create any type of compromise and go forward. Do you agree? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, I don't don't know what the solution is, except to tell people that you have to have these conversations at home. It has to start in everybody's house. It has to start with the way you communicate with each other and the way you talk to your kids and the way you talk to your family, because that I think too has degraded too. And I was somebody too, who was forgetting myself. I remember, you know, moments where I went from being someone who, who went to every conversation with eye contact prioritized and acknowledging, you know, somebody's, somebody's presence and the fact that they were making a point to someone who was distracted all the time and always thinking, well, I have to be checking this or I have to be doing that and not giving anyone the benefit of that time. I was, I was transforming before my own eyes in a way that I didn't like. So I feel like you have to check yourself and you have to remember that you're not going to get anywhere in these conversations unless you go to actually listen. Nobody listens anymore. Everyone, right. while, while the other person is talking, you're figuring out what you're going to say to bite back. And that's just <laughs> not that, it, you know, you're trained to do that on TV, but you, you have to lose that because you're supposed to be responding in the moment in an authentic way to what someone's saying. And if you're not listening to them, you're not going to win anyone over anyway. I need to make that person who I disagree with feel heard so that I can say, you know what, I get where you're coming from. And I lived that moment or a similar moment too. But have you thought about this? And no one's doing that anymore. So that's why you have the stalemate. I mean, we talk about a government shutdown and I'm like, no one can talk to each other. I'm not surprised that it's happening at the highest levels. If it's happening on cable news, it's happening in your own living room. How's it going to, how's it going to get any better unless the way we talk to each other changes? 
Yeah, it's more of a government shut up because nobody's talking to each other. So how the heck do we get out of it, right? Right. <laughs> so, you know, boy, we so agree on this. And, and I find that, that that this lack of dignity, if you will, the, the desire to, to, boy, I just want to get one over you. You know, the opportunity to get a point on TV is far more important to them than conveying a meaningful idea. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think we share that together. I think that, you know, we really try to talk about things that are meaningful to people. You know, being non-political f- for a moment, you know, I find that one of the interesting situations that we're in, in, in is that, you know, President Trump feels he has a mandate to build a wall because of his election. Mm-hmm. The Democrats feel they have a mandate not to build a wall because of their House victory <laughs> a, a, a couple of months. So each one digs into this position that they have, and there's no bridge to get out of it. It becomes a yes or no without any type of middle line. Even as a libertarian, I'm sure you'd agree, without compromise, we're just not going to get anywhere. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I used to be a registered Republican, and I just felt like the party – had left me in many ways. I felt like it, there were a lot of big government Republicans. I'm a small government girl. I want people to have control over their own lives. You know, that means I don't want you to be mandated to have health insurance. And I also don't want to, to be, have the government be able to tell you who you can and can't marry. I, I want, I want people to retain their freedom. Um, but it, it, what's happening now is just that, that really like what, what I hate about it most, I think is that politicians are behaving like politicians. You know, they're not, there, there are you know Democrats who who supported border security just a few years ago and voted for it, but now because Trump's supporting it, they have to be on record as not supporting it. And then you have you know Trump saying Mexico's going to pay for the wall. Mexico wasn't going to pay for the wall, and now he's distorting that. And it's just I feel like when people watch this, they're like, you know what, you're all the same. You're all the same, and you're all going to be shaking hands when the time comes to make deals for yourselves. And no one feels like these people are speaking for them. So I'm the person out here that gets a lot of heat just because I call them all out. And I'm so tired of the nonsense. And I just feel like, you know, you, you see you see Rand Paul and Trump getting along when it works for them. But then, you know, they run against each other and all of a sudden they hate each other. And it all seems yep. like a bunch of nonsense. And yep. in the meantime, the people that are really suffering are the people out here who are trying to figure out what's the real story, worried about their paychecks, worried about their jobs, worried about what's going to happen in the future, worried about what's actually going on below all the talking points and all the screaming back and forth. So I really sympathize with that. I try to get to the heart of the stories and I try to really find some truth in there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the way people communicate is, is so bad. And I started to notice that in schools as well, toward the end of when I was, you know, being a Dean, a lot of the kids would come to me and talk about issues. And I was seeing even with the the emergence of technology, the inability of these kids to even, if you pulled two kids into a room and had them try to work something out, they didn't have the skill sets to do that because there's those skill sets that require that were being lost. these, These kids didn't have to look each other in the eye to have most conversations. So when you put them in a room and had them look each other in the eye, that was a really uncomfortable, awkward moment for them. And I just thought, wow, what's going to happen to these kids when they go on job interviews? What's going to happen to these kids when they face the real world where you have to have these tough face-to-face moments and you have to be able to find middle ground or, or things are just going to be at a stalemate. So it's happening at, at, the, at the smallest levels of society and the most intimate levels of society. And then that just branches out into politics, which we see displayed on TV all the time. You know, it's fascinating. If you look at the history of totalitarian governments, uh, they always had loyalty around a party, right? There was a party, whether it be the Nazi party, the Communist Party, whatever party it was, there's always this. And I've been thinking about this the other day, and I thought to myself, you know, both parties, Democrats and Republicans, have default voters. Mm 
mm-hmm. that are going to vote down those party lines. They're assured of those votes. Now, sure, the Republican Party's gotten away from many of the values that we have. The Democratic Party has gotten away from many of the values as well. And our loyalty to party gives them the assurance that they're going to get a certain amount of default votes. What would happen in America if tomorrow everybody unregistered as a party supporter and registered as independents and we took that default vote away? What would happen then? Suddenly, they couldn't take those positions. Suddenly, there'd be individual accountability because default votes would disappear. It's, it'll never happen, of course, but it's a fascinating thought how these default voters, without real knowledge of individual candidates or individual issues, tend to move the country in a direction that is often more extreme than their own individual position. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I often wonder what would happen if if you put people in a room and they didn't know who the Democrat and who the Republican was and they just listened to what they had to say. And I guarantee you some people who, because of how their family voted for years or because of what they think they should be doing or because of what they've been told, oh, this is the party that stands by your you know, agenda or what, what you think is best for the country. I'm pretty sure there would be so many flips right to left because no one actually listens anymore. No one actually listens. Even when you when you look at a primary, everybody makes their decision up, you know, day one, oh, you know, they, they buy whatever the media story is about that person. No one, no one is listening to each other in order to make an informed decision. You know, I didn't vote for Trump. Um, I've, I actually wrote in Rand Paul because that's the person that I believed personally to run the country. And I, I, I didn't want someone who was, you know, going to keep our troops overseas and in various locations for extended periods of time with no timeline. And I just liked his small government attitude. And, and because I looked at his voting record and I, I paid attention and I was like, this guy has some history behind him where I feel some sense of security that if I vote him in, I know what I'm getting. Um, and, and that, you know, that was one of the themes, too, of, of why I started to write, because we have ceased to be thinking people. No one's thinking anymore. Everyone's pre-programmed to do what they think is going to make a good TV hit or a TV show or what they think the audience wants to hear or what they think is going to get Twitter followers or what or they which think. side of politics they land on. Right. right. Sides. Yep. But no one is using their own mind and just saying, you know what, what would make a good conversation or what do I really believe or what can I bring to the conversation that might actually have some productive value here. It's all like, oh, well, how can I become Instagram famous without thinking, yeah, but what is the impact of what I'm posting having on other people? Or if I have a child and she goes back and looks at this stuff, is she going to be like, well, mom, what were you doing? You were contributing negatively to the dialogue. Just no one thinking about anything anymore. Even just to take a minute and say, let me think about what's happening in the world and how quickly all this, like when it, you know, I'm referencing tech here, but it could be anything, how quickly any of this stuff is moving and what my role is in it. It's, it's just happening so fast and everyone's forgetting to just use their own brain. And that, that was, that's very scary to me. You know, I, I completely agree with that premise that you made. And even for myself, you know, I believe and agree with certain democratic views on, on social things and, and certain liberty. Uh, I also agree with conservative financial views on many, many things. Mm-hmm. I think most people fall into that envelope. And unfortunately, we're categorized in life and we have to choose. And that's really unfortunate because that takes away that opportunity of dialogue. I so agree with you. Yeah. I want to change channels for a moment. Sure. Would you, would you talk for a moment about obsession? Obsessive tech disorder. 
Oh yeah. I, so I, I had an addiction to technology. Um, I went from being someone that would, you know, look into someone's eyes, you know, craved going out to the country with nothing but nature and had these deep conversations to someone who was staring at a phone or an iPad or managing six devices at once. And I coined it as obsessive compulsive tech disorder because that's what I had. And I remember one day leaving my cell phone in a taxi cab and I, I had lost my mind. I mean, it was like I had freaked or a person or an animal or a living, breathing thing. It ruined my entire plans for the night until I had that phone. I mean, I was sweating. I had symptoms of someone who, who, who was, was suffering through an actual anxiety, a prolonged anxiety attack. (laughs) And I got it back and I looked at the phone and it was really filled with nothing. You know, it was like, hey, what's up? Or, hey, want to hang out Saturday? It was, I had missed (laughs) nothing, really nothing except the five hours that I had spent in some anxiety induced, you know, mania because I didn't have my phone attached to my hip. And I, I realized, you know what? This is getting the best of all of us. And I started to just pay attention to, I remember being in a cafe and, observing two couples on a date. And one was an older couple that was completely engaged in each other and sharing a piece of pie and just all of that old time stuff that you feel when you watch an old fashioned, you know, rom-com and you feel good and you're like, wow, I want to fall in love. I want to, it was all that stuff. <laughs> and that was side by side to two young millennials who had, they were, they were on a date. I, I later guessed, but you wouldn't even know it because they were buried in their devices, barely made eye contact. And I said to myself, you know what, this is dangerous. This is, this is the part of the problem that seeps upward of how we don't know how to communicate. Relationships are struggling. We're all anxiety ridden. And I, I dug into the research of it, especially because I had been a dean and I was worried about kids. And I was, I was seeing, you know, there's a rise in ADHD that's coinciding with a rise in these devices. And there's so many health issues that young people are developing, back problems, neck problems, sleeplessness, restlessness, anxiety, that people are linking to the fact that they feel that they need to be present in 16 mediums at once, and they no longer know how to have a face-to-face conversation. So I was part of the problem. This is, you know, I didn't write Do Not Disturb because I was preachy or... I wrote it for myself too, to try to figure out a way out of this mess and have a balance. Um, and, and I think I do that in the book really well, but it, it's a struggle. And I wanted people to see like, these are my struggles. I am the least likely person. I don't know anything about technology. I can't even hook up my telephone. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how to, everything that I do that's tech related, I have to ask my husband for help. I am so not that tech girl. And yet there I was completely obsessed with technology. So if it could happen to me, and I even give an example of my dad in the 90s who got addicted to Super Mario Brothers. I mean, my dad doesn't even have a cell phone that that, that sends text messages. He's he's really the least, I mean, he, he, he still has a VCR. I mean, he doesn't know how to have, now how to use Netflix. He uses a, a map in the glove compartment when we go on vacation. He's like manually trying to figure out where to go. He couldn't turn on a GPS if he wanted to. He doesn't even have a smartphone. So I was I was trying to say, listen, if you're out there and you feel that this 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 can't happen to you, I promise you it can. And if you're out there and it is happening to you, this is how I found my way out. Like it's not your life does not need to be this this ball of anxiety all the time. And um, here's how I fixed it. So, you know, there's another view about being present. And, you know, I watch people uh, even when I'm with them sometimes and they're texting on their phone as they're answering my questions and we're sitting and talking. So we're not looking in each other's eyes. We don't see facial expressions. We don't feel the conversation, the emotions from the other person. We're not present. 
and we say yes and no to questions in an autopilot kind of mode because we're texting away or writing away on our phones. You know, right. The only way we can be present is by looking in a person's eyes that we're sitting with and truly being present, which means our phones should probably be in our pockets, don't you think, in those moments? That's right. And I, and I also – I got very passionate about skill sets being lost because I started to think about – the moments that I had when I was young, you know, I, I have the advantage and, and maybe you have the advantage and people in their 30s and 40s can look back and they remember a time when they were not completely addicted to devices. They, they had the opportunity to grow up without all of that clutter. But when I think about middle school kids now and I remember being a kid and having, you know, the guy that liked me walked across the middle school dance and had to build up the guts to ask me out and had to, you know, try to figure out how to do that sweaty palms. Maybe you got rejected, <laughs> maybe you didn't. But all of those things were lessons in how to talk to people, how to build a backbone, how to handle rejection that were so important. And that that's not happening anywhere. I mean, people are breaking up with each other over a text message. That is the easiest way to become a coward in life. So I thought about all of those different things and then just what's happening to relationships. And I had, you know, before I got married, I had dated in New York and I had started to see just how awful it all was because everything was becoming a whole bunch of people swiping left and right on an app in a bar who didn't even didn't even pay attention. To, like you, you didn't even walk up to somebody and say, hey, you want to dance or hey, where are you from or can I get you a drink? So much of that was being removed that it became like, wow, all a bunch of pre-programmed robots now. So yeah, I think that people have lesser of, of, of a personal relationship, even because uh, of that phone gets in the middle. And I think that spreads to our political discourse and everything about us. Our relationships with each other are not yeah. as well, as good as they used to be because of that change in, in personal interaction, I think. And, and, I, and, and there's yeah. a real price that we're paying for that. There's no question about it. I wanted to activate I have a rebellious streak and I wanted to activate that in people because when I, when I started reading that Silicon Valley and these people program these devices to get us addicted and are sitting and studying behavioral psychology to figure out, well, how many times do I need to get them to click this or that to become addicted to a video game or how many apps or features like Snapchat's, um, you know, streaks, how do I set this up in a way that psychologically will get pretty much every human who responds almost the same way to, to, to get hooked. I started to feel like I could somehow remind people that you have a choice. Like you are your own person. You own your own life. And nobody likes to be told what to do. Kids don't like their parents to tell them what to do. You know, we don't like politicians to tell us what to do. No one likes that. So if I could activate that and remind people that you're in charge of your own life, maybe I could get them to say, you know what? Do I need this app? What is it doing in my life? Do I want my kids to sit and watch me staring at a phone all day? Like what message is that sending? Do I want to have a conversation with them about why it's important to have these first conversations with, you know, a member of the opposite or same sex that you're interested in or whatever it may be, you know, in in person? Like I wanted people to remember that they were people and that these machines were getting a little too involved in our lives. And the hope was that people would find their own balance, you know, would yeah. take the phone out of the bedroom. Maybe I, I took my phone out of the bedroom. I don't charge it in there anymore because I want my sleep protected or turn the notifications off when you're with someone or learn to use airplane mode or and the only way I could do it was to showcase my mistakes. You know, I dated a guy who had a whole separate life in his phone. I mean, I. He was having all night parties, sleeping around, you know, <laughs> completely 
you know, by doing drugs, selling drugs, I was completely naive and completely shocked to find that. But all of these things were lessons like, you know what? People are forgetting who they are in these spaces. A few weeks ago on my podcast, I had a gentleman by the name of Mark Peschke, who's a technology futurist. He's one of the inventors of virtual reality and worked at Apple for many years. And it really comes down to a very simple fact. Either we're going to manage technology or we're going to let technology manage us. And either we're going to control the way it comes into our lives or it's going to control the way it comes into our lives. That's exactly right. And at the end of the day, humans have to manage these things, or these things are going to manage us, and that's really scary. This has been a, a great interview, and I knew it would be. I want to end it on a comical note, if I can. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> okay, you have a wonderful name. Uh, 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 oh, uh, Jedediah is a beautiful name. Now, when you hear your name and you think of your ancestry, okay, this must be a derivative of a grandmother's name. There must be deep ancestral basis and historical basis to this name that your parents gave you. And in fact, tell everybody where your name came from. It's so funny, actually, because for the longest time, my mom was like, you don't have to tell people where the name really comes from, but it's great. It's a great story. So my not, my name actually comes from the TV show, Barnaby Jones. <laughs> there was a character <laughs> named Jedediah. And my mom just liked the name and thought, you know what, if it's a boy or a girl, I'm going to name her Jedediah. And she, of course, you know, liked it because it was exotic and people would remember it. And she always says, you know, because the first thing people say is, oh, your name is biblical. And they have this very kind of stoic <laughs> face. And my mother would love me to be like, well, yes, it is. And my mother is religious. And but it's not. It's funnier because she was a she was, you know, a drama teacher. And she's she's a very like colorful, amazing person. And that's really cool to me that I have a name that's a man's name. So I'm very surprising. Oftentimes I'll call like a credit card company or something and they'll be like, hey, you know, Mr. Bila. And I'm like, uh, no, that's me. I'm actually Jedediah. And they're like, what? <laughs> so it's surprising. I love that story. It's a yeah, great she's story. Great. She's actually, my mother is, a, it's funny. I had her on Fox and Friends with me one day cooking and she was so nervous and she wound up being, I was, she, she was, she was a bigger hit. I saw hit it. So. I oh, saw did it. You? Yeah, yep. she's a big hit, my mom. So, <laughs> well, this was a lot of fun. Uh, uh, I enjoyed this very much. I'd love to have you back another time in a few months, and we can sort of update on issues. And I look forward to seeing you in a Fox building. Uh, thank you so much. Sounds great. And thank you for having me on. This was a blast. Uh, take care. Anything? Uh, where can we find you on social? Yeah, so I'm just at Jedediah Bila. Um, on I, I am on Instagram. I am on Facebook. I am on Twitter. And, you know, that's what the book's about, too, guys. Remember, I'm not telling you to throw your technology away. I'm just reminding you to take a look at how you exist in those spaces and whether or not you're happy with your role and just to have open eyes about it. Um, but I am on social media um, a lot less than I used to be. And I have a website, jedediabila.com. And you can find me usually hosting The Five and Fox and Friends on the weekend. Those are my two main spots right now. Well, I'll be watching. And this was fun. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Well, I really hope Jetta Diabila comes back because I'd love to talk to so much more to talk about. She makes us think, doesn't she? You know, her political views, her libertarian views, you know, less government, more money in our pocket, you know, less government, more freedom. Uh, believe it or not, in whatever side of the political spectrum you are, these are things that are interesting to think about. And, and uh, uh, we should all be thinking about less <laughs> before we do more. That's probably a healthy view on almost all aspects of life. Anyways, great to have Jedi. And uh, 
Well, when I come back, it is my favorite part of the weekly podcast. It is. I look forward to it every week, and that is my audience call-ins. And by the way, if you'd like to be on the show, I'd love to have you. All you have to do is send an email to podcast at johntafford.com. Tell me what you want to talk about, and uh, we'll get back to you, and we'll schedule you on a podcast. It's really easy. Just send an email to podcast at johntafford.com. Tell me what you want to talk about, and you could be on a podcast along with whoever's going to be next. So I'll be back with audience calls in just a minute. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Corey, I don't ask for many favors, do I? No. Well, I think this is an important one. I need you to hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts, go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes of No Excuses every Tuesday morning. Why wouldn't you do that, Corey? I don't know. Neither do I. So go do it. Shut it down. All right, John, let's get into these audience callers. First up, we have Ryan. Even though he's an experienced bar owner, he still has a few questions for you. How are you, Ryan? Doing well, John. How are you? Good. You're a bar guy, huh? I'm looking at your notes. You sent me some pretty significant notes here, buddy. Well, well yeah, we have some, uh, a little bit of experience. We're trying to find our way around a little bit, but... Um, so you tell me about your stuff. tell me about your bar. So, you, so what you have a bar that's sort of a beer garden, beer hall type of a bar. Yeah. How big is it? Yeah, so we so we uh, it's uh, it's about 120 feet inside, about 165 or so outside. Okay. Um, so you know, decent size. And uh, I had a brewery down the street for a couple of years that I started, um, and it was just it got bigger than it was built for. I guess mm-hmm. to, to, you know, that might not make sense, but. You know, the kitchen was overly stressed for the amount of seats we ended up having. Um, you know, so it, it just, it operationally, it just was more of a headache than it was worth, in my opinion. So, um, sold it, we did fine on it, and, it, you know, it was, it was a successful uh, brew pub. And then kind of opened this to simplify the concept, get a bigger footprint, and kind of make it more, uh, you know, more worthwhile, I guess, from a from an effort standpoint. Well, let me make but, a uh, so place, so let me, Go ahead. Let me make a couple of comments for you. You know, so your, some of your questions to me was that you got a beer hall, beer garden, which skews a little male. Right. And do you need more women? And, you know, what kind of marketing works and, and avoids? So let me give you just a, a couple of a, a rundown and sort of address some of your notes here that you sent to me. Okay. Yeah, you, you bet. Know, first of all, a, a beer is the least and, and worst performing sector in the entire beverage space. Uh, uh, the word... Yeah. The word craft in front of beer is actually a negative now in the marketplace and reduces potential by 3%. Reduces potential by 3%. Right. If you put the word craft in front of whiskey, on the other hand, it increases potential by 8%. And these are significant research numbers that I'm giving you. So beer... Right. On that, not, actually, on that point, um, I, I kind of got that too. That's, I looked at the craft brewery industry or craft beer industry while I was in it. And you can see it, right? You can yeah, kind of see it's, the the it's worn off. It's, yeah. um, there's a lot of shitty breweries out there. Um, so you know, it's just not. So that's what we did with the beer halls. We we pivoted a little bit, still kept the kind of beer focus, but went mostly to European beers and kind of took the craft out of it and did yeah. something a little bit different in that angle. And what we what we realized in hindsight is we can't just have beer with a limited liquor menu. We need to expand the liquor menu you to do. kind of be so you know, in the bar so we, business. We, we, in the barbins, you're going to run about a 28% cost on bottled beer, about a 22 23% cost on draft beer, but you can run a 14 to 17% cost on cocktails at a higher price. So yeah, here's, yeah. Your, here's well, your issue. I guess with our, with our price points at this place, we, our beers are actually you know, in the 7 to $10 range in Omaha, which is extremely high. 
Um, and we're, we're kind of in that 25% cost of goods on our beer. Um, and our cocktails are in that, you're right, that, that mid to high teens so um, if kind we, of range. So, so if yeah. we take a look at a bar, you'll never see a bar with 100 women in it go broke, will you? Never, ever oh, happen. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, never. So, so the question uh, becomes, you know, how do you take a beer environment, which is inherently a male environment, inherently a male product type, and how do you shift the environment to create, you know, more of a presence of, of, of a higher mix of women in the, in the bar? The only way you can accomplish that is through a cocktail program. And the only way you can accomplish that is through the shift of music, environment, and cocktails to provide something that a female can hang her hat on. So let me let me speak to that for a couple of moments. One, uh, uh, the science of colors is very powerful. If you have red, pinkish type of cocktails, it goes a long way with females. Height in glassware goes a long way with females. So you need to put in the kind of back bar displays that make alcohol seem important. Right now, you have chalkboards and stuff behind your bar. Yeah, I, yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't want to order a cocktail from a place that doesn't have bottle displays and things in the back bar. And, so, and on that note, we actually that's that's getting put in in January. So the uh, so full back. That's bar. really important. So it has to have visual importance. Next, it has to have right. uh, you know menu boards on a wall and martini boards or whatever it is on a wall to promote the cocktails to make them important. Next, you got to do sampling programs, if you can, in your state, where people get a little taste of cocktails. So you put one in the middle of the tray in this beautiful glass and garnish, and you put little you know, solo cup shot glasses around it so that you can sample and taste it. Then you tell your employees they're not allowed to ever comp a beer. The only thing they're ever allowed to comp is a mixed cocktail. Uh, uh, and then we got to really work now if we have a cocktail program in place that has the potential of drawing women. Now we got to take a look at our music program. And we got to take a look at how can we shift music so that it's more female friendly. And there is music that is more female friendly. That's very, very important. Next. Right. Next, we have to make certain that we don't have all female employees and that those female employees aren't dressed or behave in a way that can alienate the kind of women that you want to come to your bar. That's often a major issue in bars that skew male, is they have customers that skew male, which means they don't often have the respect or, or, or imagery with women that is important. You've got to have all those elements in place, the female environment, the female-friendly staff that is physically appealing to a female clientele, and you've got to have the cocktails and the music. Once you have those elements in place, only then can you launch a female-based promotion like a ladies' night or something and have it work. Right now, any yeah, pro- kind of- any promotion you do is not going to work because you don't have their products, you don't have their environment, you don't have the the staff. So all those pieces really have to come together, Ryan, uh, uh, for that to work with women. Let me just uh, run this through here because I'm on a roll for you for a moment. When it comes to marketing, you know, uh, uh, in the bar business, you really can't afford mass media. And in a market like Omaha, it's it's, it's too expensive. So you have to exactly. be able to do neighborhood marketing programs and stuff. So, for example, we produce things like style cards. Style card, you can make 500 of them for 30 bucks. It's a basic business card. It says, we like your style. We opened, uh, 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 we opened Ryan's Bar for people just like you. Present this next week for priority seating or for a free cocktail or for a chance to win this or that. And what we do is we give those cards to women constantly. So every woman that comes in a room gets a style card. We love the way you're dressed. Come back and get a free blank. Come If you can't give away booze, give away food. Give away something. But every female that enters the building gets a bounce back. Men, I don't care about. The female, right. the restroom for women should be a freaking palace. The men's room can be an outhouse. I don't care. 
but the female restroom better be a freaking palace. So you go out and you buy cheap molding at Home Depot. You put it around the mirrors. So you paint it gold. You put some trim on the stalls. You paint it gold. You put a rug on the floor, a plant in there, and you make the restaurant, I mean, bathroom female friendly. If you don't do all these little things, nothing is going to change. If you do one or two of them, nothing is going to change. You have to do all of them. And if you do, the customer mix of your bar will change. Women will have the products, the environment, the music, the safety of the restroom, the attitude of the staff, and that will start to greatly shift the mix of your business. Uh, uh, Lastly, you know, when we market, there's three things that you market to, Ryan, and you have to have new customers, frequency, and spend. Those are the three most important things that you can generate in a bar that you have to do, and they're separate exercises. New customer programs are very different than frequency programs, which are very different than spend programs. So you need to think in those ways. So if you want to do a ladies' night... Spend program. Excuse me? What do you mean by spend program? A a program to increase sales, for example. You know, in, in, in a beer bar, we always have four sizes of beer. And here's the science of sizing. Uh, uh, and I'll use Starbucks as a great reference. You know, when Starbucks put in a large venti-sized coffee, it wasn't to sell large coffees. It was to sell more medium coffees. People typically don't order the largest size. They order the second the largest size. So by putting in the large, their medium sales almost doubled. So you need to put in, A, a larger beer so that the one that people buy comes up two or three ounces. So you increase sales by increasing. Right now we have. We have quarter liter, half liter, and liter beers in pints. So we have, uh, but we only have two options. Which probably we should add. There should always be you know, three. Like quarter liter option for every beer, and, and okay. There should okay. always be three. People can inclined with beer. They'll pick the smaller size because it gets flat. Blah blah blah. If you have three sizes, they'll pick the middle size. It'll be much better. But you really need to take a look at the business top to bottom and, and really create. A, a much more female-friendly type of environment. And by the way, you know, a beer hall is a very non, a, a very female, unfriendly expression. But beer garden, uh, uh, you know, becomes much more female-friendly. So, oh yeah, the beer so, garden they go nuts for, right? Yes. I mean, so, so you really got to um, take a look. And I got to run, buddy, because I got some other callers. But you really want to take a look yeah. at those elements. You know, take a look at all those female-based elements that we talked about. Look at some of those purchasing elements. Get that back bar in there with their cocktail program, and you'll see yeah. things will start to shift. All right, John. We have Jess, who is the director of program for Girl Scouts in the heart of Pennsylvania. Ooh, hi, Jess. Nice to talk with you. Hi, John. It's very nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So when my daughter was little, uh, my wife was the cookie mom. <laughs> and I, awesome. I remember those days when my living room was packed eight feet yes. high in cookie boxes and all the moms coming over. And I was very involved in my daughter's life and, and, and uh, very involved in that aspect of her life and have a great appreciation for what you're doing with these girls. It's a wonderful program. And it teaches That's them amazing. it teaches them so much about life and to watch them grow and you know develop the courage to say, "Would you like to buy some cookies to a stranger in front of a market mm-hmm. or with just wonderful skills and, and built value in the girls it's a wonderful, wonderful program. Congratulations, Jess, for doing it. Uh, it really makes Absolutely. a difference in our communities and, and you know yeah. it's it, it's people like you that make it happen for all these girls, so hats off. And what would you like to talk about? Because uh, I am all into what you do. Yes, no, that's wonderful. I mean, I just think it's 
and and you kind of said it yourself too. The skills that these girls are learning because of the cookie program it lasts a lifetime. It does, and so you know people don't always realize what the girls are getting out of it. It's not just a fundraiser. There's so much more to it. Well, you know, when I used to, to be involved in, I used to think that the girls would learn three key things that I thought were really important. One was courage. The courage mm-hmm. to, to go up and ask somebody to buy something. That's a little scary, especially when you're a young right. girl and you're going up to an adult. Uh, so I think courage was very, very important. The other thing that I mm-hmm. thought was very important was integrity. You know, to make certain that they dropped the cookies when they said that they would. And that yeah. everything that they did was honorable. And that, you know, that, that they could honor uh, their word and who they were. And then the other thing that I thought it taught them was accountability. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Sally only sold 12 boxes of cookies, but Paula sold 200 boxes of cookies. Right. You know, it, it, it teaches the girls that, wow, well, well, you know, the one who sold a lot of cookies knocked on more doors. You know, there, mm-hmm. there's a connection between what we do and what we get. And I thought yes. those were the three big lessons that, that it taught the girls, all really powerful lessons. Absolutely. So, we talk a lot about the kind of five key skills, and one of them is business ethics. And that's my favorite one of yeah, those too. skills that we talk about when we talk about, you know, the cookie program. Yep. Because where else are girls today learning business ethics, you know? I agree. It's funny, too. And it's almost, you know, that's a very good point. You know, Boy Scouts don't have any building, business building element like that. And it's interesting that Girl Scouts do. And I never really looked at it in that way. But you're right. They have a revenue responsibility. They have schedules that they have to fill to make sure that they sell them. They have delivery and distribution they need to deal with. Right? They got to sample a little bit, hopefully not too much. And and, uh, there's a lot to it. But the other thing I think that's important is they work in teams a lot, too. They work together. And that's a great thing as well. You know, they want to count on each other. So how are are cookie sales up year to year? Are they doing well all in all? Well, I can speak for the Girl Scout Council I work for, which is Girl Scouts in the heart of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And we cover 30 counties in South Central Pennsylvania. So we're a pretty large council. Um, And our cookie sales have been up the last three years. That's terrific. Um, Yeah, so we're seeing more participation even. Last year we had more than 300 girls participate than in the previous year. Wow. really exciting. And they're having fun. And they're having fun, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And... You know, your wife is a testament, too, to the volunteers. We can't do it without them. And I just think it's, it's really great to have so many adult volunteers involved. And then, of course, everything that they're instilling in these girls is just incredible. You know, it's interesting. When I did it, I was one of the few fathers that, were, that did it. It was all the moms. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, want, I want to make a plea right now to all the fathers that are listening here, that if you don't get involved in these kinds of things, you know, the cookie driving, you're missing such a great opportunity and great time with your daughter. So I was one of the few dads around, but I would move the cookies and you'd go out with the girls, and I had a blast doing that stuff. Yeah. And wonderful yeah. time to not only with my daughter, but to spend time with her closest friends. And it just yes. it's, it's a great way to be involved in the community. I've got to ask you this question. I hope you can answer it because I'm just really curious to know this. Sure. In 30 counties in Pennsylvania, what's the volume? How many boxes of cookies will you guys sell? <laughs> That's my favorite question. So last year, we were just shy of selling 2 million packages of Girl Scout cookies. Just in your 30 counties? 
Correct. Wow. That's, I, yeah. I would have never have imagined that. That's unbelievable. Right? And to think right. that all of those cookies go through these girls' hands, their families' hands, that this is all logistically handled by a bunch of people who just either want to be Girl Scouts or want to support the Girl Scouts. It's really an amazing right. thing. It is. It is. It is The Girl Scout program, you know, across all of the United States is the largest girl-led entrepreneurship program in the world. Wow. And it's just so neat to be a part of and even see what other Girl Scout councils in other areas are doing and, you know, where it takes the girls as they get older and, and continuing Girl Scouts, like earning their gold award and doing those sorts of amazing things, too. It's, it's really um, quite the production. Well, I got to tell you, it, it, when, all you have to do is have one one of your mint cookies, and it's all worth it. That's right. <laughs> and the lemons are pretty darn good as well. You know, it, it, it was yeah. a lot of fun to talk to you, and uh, uh, and you know, I so appreciate what you're doing, Jess, and your enthusiasm for it. And it's true. And we should all look at this differently. You know, as as adults and our kids, maybe you're growing, et cetera. You know, this is an entrepreneurial program, and these are yeah. young girls who are having their first experience dealing with us, the public. And the way we react to them and whether we buy, and even if we don't buy, how we treat them. And, you know, the way we encourage these girls is a responsibility, I think, that we all have. So I suggest to everyone that, you know, spend a moment or two with these girls when you go in the store and they're selling these cookies. And buy a box of cookies. If you don't want to give it to somebody else, because I'd love to see us get another million or so cases up there in in your 30 That would be great. (laughs) (laughs) We would love that. Okay, Jess, I'm going to, as the, the experienced cookie mom, I'm going to ask you one final question here. What is your favorite Girl Scout cookie? That is a very good question. I flip-flop, but this year I think it's the Samoa. Ooh, excellent choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> great to talk to you, and please send my best to all the girls, and, and uh, I hope you have a great, great season. Shut it down! All right, let's get right back into these callers. So first up, we have a young lady that is a victim of domestic violence, and she's looking for a little bit of advice. I saw you read my book, Don't B.S. Yourself. And uh, I also saw that that you were a victim of some domestic violence. But, you know, the words that that you put in your note to me that really just I lit up when I read it was how you're so much stronger than you've ever been in your life. So I am. So you took the domestic violence that you were exposed to and you used it to make you stronger, not weaker, didn't you? I did. I did 100%. And, you know, it's really sad that the day that I had to go to court for that, there was two other women from my job that were there for the same reasons. And we all looked at each other and we were like, wait, what are you doing here? (laughs) What are you doing here? You know, and it was very, like, almost kind of empowering to see all of us step up and say, hey, we've had enough. We're ready to be strong and stand up for ourselves for well, once that, in our lives, you that, know? That is very and, admirable, and, and I'm really proud to, to, of you to hear you I say also, that because too many people take, take a horrific moment or time in their lives like that, and they let it weaken them, and you can't because when I hear you, you are strong, and look what, yeah. what you overcame, and, and you're too strong to allow something like that to ever happen to you again. So, so, so you can look ahead without the fear that you had in the past. And that's really powerful, Nikki. That's awesome. Yes. So, Thank you. Well, so, and I go ahead. really, really, I'm sorry. Please <laughs> so, go ahead. Um, but no, I really, I really am so much stronger and feel like so empowered. And it's like, I want to do something 
with this empowerment, you know, and I used to be in like the trade show industry and I was laid off and, you know, Costco really was the only company that ever called me during the time that I was laid off. And I pushed carts when it was 115 out <laughs> and, you know, the Vegas summers, you know, St. Yep. George gets too. And I never missed a day of work and I pushed carts and I fought through all of this and I, you know, know that I'm so much better and, just really want to put myself out there, you know, but St. George does kind of limit me. Yeah, there isn't, does. you it know, does. too much here. You know, I put my, you know, resume and things like that out there, but you know, it's like, I want, you know, what is some good helpful advice to really show somebody like, Hey, you need to give me a chance. I'm amazing. I am so strong now. And I don't want you to miss out on this <laughs> right well, now. Know, Especially first, energy. first of all, uh, uh, um, your past isn't, doesn't matter. To most employers, right. you need to know that. So they don't need to know about your personal struggles or the personal things that you went through. That shouldn't be an issue. Right. Uh, uh, you should just go in and let that personality that you have shine. That's your greatest <laughs> asset is, sure. is who you are. What 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 would you do if you could do anything? What do you want? Um, I'll be honest. I really, okay, I'm really obsessed with part of my take <laughs> podcast. And that's actually how I heard about your book because you went on there. <laughs> And I listen to him on my way to work at 2 o'clock in the morning. Okay, so and I, I want to say this right now. If, if Dan Katz was lis- is listening right now, uh, 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 and if you knew Dan like I did, you'd love him even more. Okay. And we're talking about big I know, and I, would, and I would probably tell him those Cubs suck. <laughs> it's really, really hard to tell him. But, <laughs> um, but no, I, I love sports. And I think as I've gotten older, it's like I really would love to do something that I'm more passionate about. You know, I can – hold my own in a conversation with sports. And that's so rare for girls it is. in that kind of industry to be able to do, you know, especially with college football. And I love the NHL and I go nice. So, <laughs> um, so, uh, but uh, I, I, I love all of that stuff. And it's hard to try to find something to like really focus in. And, you know, this is what I want to do and show people that I have. You do know, you, I do, want you to uh, do, this. do you need to stay where you are because of family and stuff in St. George? Or are you prepared to relocate? Um, prepared to relocate um you know i love my family here in st george and they have been the most amazing supportive family like honestly cannot thank them enough but they encouraged me to you know if i need to grow i need to grow and i have this amazing little girl who i want to show who has a strong mom that you know can stand up to anything now well let me share a couple of things with you vegas isn't far away from you is it all right pretty easy to go back and visit family (laughs) from from here uh, uh, yeah. You know, we have the Raiders coming in town. We have the Golden Knights, who is a huge footprint in town. Uh, uh, we yeah. have the 51s, a baseball team. There's talk of a Major League Baseball team here now. This city is exploding. Mm-hmm. We have yeah. USC sports here. Uh, uh, we have MMA sports here. We have boxing here. Uh, we have soccer here. You should, yes. if I were you, I would start dropping some resumes in in Las Vegas. And, 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 and because that's a real possibility for you to go to. Also, I got to tell you something, you know, I'm very close to the barstool sports guys. What's wrong with you proposing the barstool sports that you would do a barstool Utah show? Hey, I love it. And that you, because the fact of the matter is you do have a unique sports perspective. And, and, and as a woman, you know, you, you, you enjoy things that many other women don't, which is very barstool. So I would send a note to Barstool Sports, and if you if you uh, 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 send a note to me, 
I'll forward it on to Dan personally for you. And you should propose to them (laughs) that you should do, because you sound great, that you should do a podcast for Barstool. And maybe you could do it as Barstool Utah and there's Barstools all over the country. I'll tell you what. Why don't you put together your idea in an email of what you'd like to do. And I will get it to the Barstool team, and I'll make sure that Dan Katz answers you himself. Oh, that would be so amazing, John. Thank you. And I'm saying right now on my podcast, if Dan Katz doesn't answer you himself, I'm going to kick his ass. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? We'll both take him on. I know it's jumpsuit January for him, but, you know, that's easily taken down. That's fine. (laughs) So I think that's that's a a really fun idea for you. So why don't you take a look at some opportunities in Vegas and put that email together for me on what your podcast show would look like and what the format would be and what you want to talk about. And and let me send it on and let's see if we can get you on, on the air. Okay. Okay. I love it. Thank you so much for this opportunity. My pleasure, Nikki. Nice to talk to you. Happy yeah, New nice year. to talk to you as well. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. I'm, I'm cornering Dan Katz on this one, Corey. I'm taking him down. I love it. I think she'd be great at it, don't you? No, yeah. She's got a great personality. She does, and she loves sports. And, and look, you know, there's a, 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 it's always fun to listen to, to somebody in the media business uh, who knows sports and is a woman. The perspective is often a lot better than ours. So please, if you're opening a new business, if you've got a strategy or a plan and you want to be challenged... Send a note to me at podcast at johntaffer.com. That's podcast at johntaffer.com. And you can be on the podcast with me, and I hope you do, because there's nothing I like more than your calls. Well, I want to thank my sponsors again, MyPillow, Quicken Loans, BetDSI, the Robinhood app, and True Car. I tell you that I'll see you all back next week. I'm finishing up my Puerto Rico shoot on Thursday, so I get to go home Thursday night. I've been here for three weeks, and as much as I love it here, i got to tell everybody I'm really excited about going home. So next Monday, I'll be back in our home studio in Las Vegas, and I'll talk to you then. Have a great week, everybody. And remember, no freaking excuses. No excuses. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. 